So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting. On the show right now, we have Sonia Ree, who's the founding member of Bright Birch Collective, and she consults with big and small companies, helping their teams to launch new pilots, products, or programs, aka, in her own words, risky stuff. <laughs> She's also an advisor to the CEO of Startup Mood and previously had quite a few different roles. So I just want to say, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jonathan, for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's let's kick off with one unique approach uh, that you'd like to share that other consultants you think should really know about and probably don't. Yes. So I've actually, I thought about this, not from, this is for the consultants themselves. So mm-hmm. oftentimes I think the one thing that we don't, and this ends up helping companies is, you know, we're often brought into new situations and we have to digest a tremendous amount of information. And they're looking, of course, for a fresh perspective, a wildly creative perspective. They're looking for something that I think requires a lot of tremendous brain power to make decisions, even if our job is not necessarily to make decisions for the company, but to sort of shepherd and sort of coach, cheer on the group themselves. And that kind of fatigue that I, a lot of us fall into is, I think, dangerous not only to the client, but to our own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that whole approach of like you put, you know, the it, within an airplane, like put the mask on first for yourself, you know, then someone else. So I try to do in my in my everyday life what I call like the everyday decisions. I try to and I don't want to say automate that. But I try to already have those decisions in place. What I what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? It sounds tremendously boring. It's not going to make you the most exciting person, you know, to look at or to eat dinner with. But I think I do that because I found myself having a lot of f- decision fatigue. I'm not even sure if that's the word, but a lot of fatigue words. Like I wasn't bringing that kind of creative aspect because if you think about it, and you and people. They, of course, this is one of the most exciting things uh, that friends can talk about, which is, you know, we're all foodies. We're going to talk about the latest restaurants. What are we going to eat? What are we going to make? And that in itself is when you, I, I, you know, I don't know how we would percentage out the amount of your creative endeavor and time and effort devoted to it. But I think if you can make that easier for yourself, at least while you're working or trying to be that person with the fresh brain, with the wildly creative ideas, please let those decisions already be made in your everyday life. It will make your life easier. Yeah. And it won't make it more exciting. Yeah. But I think if you if you if you're juggling multiple clients and you're juggling so much new information, it will really help your life. And you know, of course, if the Flaubert said it better, which is I think he said like be regular in your everyday life or orderly so that you can be I think he said violent in your work, but the notion is you don't have to be the creative person within every aspect of your life. In fact, I, I would say it's, you shouldn't. Yeah. And don't necessarily leave it all for work, but if you can just have everything put in advance, then you can, you can be that person who has a fresh perspective, which is really what they're looking for. They're not looking for new ideas. No, there's nothing new, but they are looking for a fresh perspective. Yeah. And I think that'll help you do that better. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I think something something that we often underestimate is oftentimes with work, it's not the actual work that's the exhausting part, especially with information work. It's actually making decisions and having to make so many just in a single day. 
Absolutely. And you have more than one client or you have across industries and you're and even if you have a tremendous amount of experience or 20 or more years, I mean, I have 20 or more years, it doesn't matter because I still have to read, you know, 150 page four document before I jump in because that's the background, the situational background in order for me to understand what's happening. And I'm not going to guarantee it's going to make you the most creative person, but it's just going to save your brain for your actual life. Because we do have to live our lives as well as devote ourselves to work. But let's make things easier for ourselves if we can. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on to our next question here, what's a resource? Uh, this could be book, article, podcast, or um, that has had the most impact on you either professionally or personally? Yeah, I thought about this for a while because I'm a massive consumer of listening, watching, reading all various things, and then being sort of a magpie of like, oh, I'm going to pick up that quote, or I'm going to pick up that idea and write it down. And so there are books, and I know other people have mentioned them, there's Marshall Goldman books, and there's classic books. I actually was just rereading Andy Grove's High Output Management, if I think I'm getting that right. That's a classic, I think. I would say like every Silicon Valley guy is going to be like, that's the book to read. <laughs> Very old school, but that's it's a fundamental, I think it's like a great fundamental um, book about just reading about people's motivations and giving a sense of, situ- you know, he gives you situations and I've seen it play out in a very different way, but it's like, oh, these are, there's only like a certain number of storylines that are happening. You know, they're so it's just a very tremendously helpful book. And then there's, um, Misbehaving, which I'm rereading by Richard Thaler. He is a um, economist, not a classic economist, but more in the Kahneman, I think, Tursky school. Um, but it's not academic. I'll tell you, you can read it. It's very easy to read. It's not, and I'm not an academic at all. Never studied economics. Yeah. So, uh, but those are those books. I think are great because it's about situations and people and about how we how oftentimes we fool ourselves into making the wrong decisions. So I would say from book, a book perspective, that's what it is. But the thing that fundamentally makes the biggest difference is every day I read about three papers or more. And I'm not reading every section of every paper, but the reason why it's helpful is inevitably I will find one or two articles that translate into something that's relevant to, to the work I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as helpful context to the work we do or the things that our clients worry about, that is a tremendously helpful thing. And so I, I even put down, so the papers I read right now, and they sort of rotate it. So right now it's New York Times, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and the Washington Post. Um, for a while, it was the Guardian, the Irish Times, instead of the New York Times and the Washington Post plus Wall Street Journal and LA Times. So there's usually a a rotating roster that I have. Great. And can you tell us about someone who's had a significant influence on either your life or your career? Yes. I uh, thought about my, you know, I've really thought about the foreign bosses I've had. Um, I've had a lot. um, The two from Ogilvy are Jonathan Stern and Priya Varadashri. They were the first people, I think, that put a tremendous amount of faith in me to do the work without telling me that they put a tremendous amount of faith in me. So at that time I thought, okay, they're giving me a lot of responsibility and and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. 
But what I really liked was I think they did the, the fee. I, did, I didn't realize this until much later that they were advocating for me behind the scenes, mm. which I, you know, people talk about that difference between someone advocating for you versus somebody mentoring or advising you. And that's a difference that I saw when I was with them. And that's probably the biggest sort of exponential growth I've had was during my time with them. And I will say they were also the most demanding. And I mean that in a very positive way. <laughs> They're the most demanding people I've worked for. And you they held you accountable. I'm grateful for it. Um, I also had another boss. This is at Deloitte. Now he's at um, McKinsey. He's a wonderful guy. And I remember, I, I never forgot it. He asked me one time, do you want to be right or do you want to be persuasive? I think about that all the time. Mm. And I, I just think um, his name is Ed C., tremendously smart, wonderful person who he did. He said that to me and I never forgot it because I was like, Ed, I want to be persuasive. I don't want to be. (laughs) And that I think about that. I I don't want to be right. But can't you be both at the same time? Yes, you can also be both. But I think, well, it was in reference to a specific thing, but I think the notion that if you can't, which do you want to be? Because oftentimes um, especially with the technology or digital, that progressive space where a lot of people that don't know, you know, you're sort of there to help educate them, but you don't want to, you want to do it in a way that's persuasive rather than trying to explain, you know, you don't know what this is. Let me, I mean, not that you're writing that, but of course it, it comes through. So that's all about subtext, not context. And I think a lot of that subtext whether it's in person or in writing, that's what people walk away with, whatever you say, whatever is written. Mm. And I think it was more just about an attitude or sensibility and just to make sure whatever you're communicating, you want to do it in a persuasive manner and not in a manner that you're trying to emphasize that what they're doing is wrong and what you're saying is right. Mm. Also, it's not necessarily, I would say more times than not, aren't we all more wrong? I mean, it's a lot easier to work from that. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like trying to be right is a tremendous amount of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, cause you're not going to be right all the time or even most of the time we're lucky if we do get it right. Yeah. Yeah. Something else you mentioned, I'm curious about, about those two mentors of yours at, at Ogilvy and how they were advocating for you behind the scenes. I'm curious how that manifested itself or how you found out. Was it just, yeah, through conversations, or I'm just curious how you how you um, identified that. Yeah, how I found out that Jonathan and Priya were advocating for me behind the scenes was there was a an IBM video series I, that was launched, and last minute I think I was um, asked to be to sort of moderate a talk between all these IBM innovators. But you know you have to do the video, and so I come from a background in video, so they wanted me to because you have to do the controls, you know, record it. But also, you know, you're really a moderator. You're not the person at the center of that. And who watches that besides a small number of people? And I was surprised how many people within the agency came up to me, people that I didn't know who are different managers within different aspects, because, of course, there's a bigger manager meeting that you're never invited to that you don't know that's happening. And Priya and Jonathan had shown it, or Priya, I think, had mentioned it and actually specifically presented that at the meeting. Mm. And I was very, so I was like, how did you watch that? Because, you know, of course, we're also checking on the number of views. 
Yeah. Um, and I just was very surprised. And they're like, oh, I, I think Priya presented that. I, I, it just was. And that's when I had that first inkling of, oh, that's what they've been doing. And I then I do remember, you know, Jonathan and Priya saying, you know, the things that we do, we don't tell you because that's true. They don't. I mean, behind the scenes constantly before I'm presenting, they're walking around to do, and that's what good managers do. They're the ones talking to all the other people who are going to be there from all the different teams, um, including the client to say, this person's going to present and this person has, has great insights or blah, blah, blah. You know, that's what they're doing. Mm. But I think a lot of the time when you're working before you become your manager, you realize, oh, that's what they're doing. Cause you're wondering, I'm doing all the work. What are, I've, I've often heard other people say that when I was a manager, I was like, you don't know how much I'm doing. I'm not supposed to tell you, but in my mind, because it's like, I didn't even want to be a manager, right? You get forced into it, but that's what you're doing because you're like, where is that person? Is that person taking a two hour lunch break? No. Yeah. But I think that's when it's, you realize there's so much work behind the scenes you'll never see. And even from a client perspective, you know, client to agency or client to consultant perspective, there are so many things that have already been done. And, you know, we shouldn't like, there's a lot of things behind the scene. There's a lot of things we can't see that are being done that we shouldn't take for granted. Yeah. So don't make those assumptions. And I think that's possibly, you know, I would say get it even, I know you're asking about the advocacy, advocacy question, but it does kind of relate to the persuasive versus being right. Because I don't want to also come in with an assumption that, you know, I'm right. Cause perhaps what I'm proposing or, you know, has already been done. So it's just, I think it's more about just try to be a lot more humble and be more of an asker, at least in the beginning, as Mm. you, you know, I I just, not that I am, I'm not, but I think it's just something to keep in mind. It's because you're being brought in in a certain way. So people are in some ways it's that fear mentality that people are, are, they have because if, when you're launching something new, there's a tremendous amount of fear. It's going to go wrong. It's going to it's yeah. going to be expensive. It's going to be wasteful. So, I think if you're doing risky stuff, it's best to keep these kinds of ideas in mind. It's an interesting difference in approach because I, I've definitely noticed when I was doing consulting that you had some people who were just coming guns blazing. They'd be like, we need to do this. You should be doing this. And and sometimes the client would love that. They'd be like, great, we've got an action taker here. Stuff's going to happen. I was more usually on the more like, let's just assess things first and figure out what the heck is going on here. But yeah, it's just a, a difference in approach, isn't it? You know. Yeah, but but I like your approach, and I think, but that's what they want. And I I will say, I, did, I forgot to say that Priya and Jonathan also said it's not about you because mm. that you know I'd be very nervous about speaking at yeah. or presenting, and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to have to practice in the room, and they're like, here's a really good thing to think about. It's not about you. Everyone else yeah. is thinking about their turn and what they're going to say, yeah. and it, they're absolutely right. And at the same time. It's not about me because I'm there representing the company. Very rarely are they going to remember your name. And it's, in fact, that made me feel so much better. Mm. I was like, it's not about me. It's about the company. And that's how I approach everything. I was like, they don't even know my name. So it's okay. I just need to do the good job that they, that they need to fulfill what they, you know, their ask is. That's all I need to do because they could, they don't care about you. And I don't, and that's not. I'm not trying to say that in a way of like, they don't care about you as a person. It's just, 
it takes that pressure off you to have to perform and to be on constantly and to always have that answer because yeah. that's it's it's that's just, you don't have to shoulder all of that yeah yeah and and that kind of leads on well to to my next question around more more focused on the work that you do and the expertise you provide so can you tell me like who is your ideal client that you work with the my ideal client is uh and i wrote this specific i was thinking someone who's blunt <laughs> uh i had a client uh, who i was brought on to interface with i think i was maybe like the third set of bodies you know that that was thrown at this person because mm. people at my company they were in sheer terror and i i mean and that made me nervous i was like oh my god how am i going to get through this call what what is like i didn't get any specifics other than she is frightening and you better have your answers because she is going to grill you. Yeah, she did. But what she said was, she said, look, this is what keeps me up at night. And here is my cell phone number and you can call me anytime. Because she's like, this is what I don't know. And I need to know this. Mm. I don't think we, we do think we often assume clients are going to be that going to be good. We're going to actually know the thing that keeps them up, the, the question they want answered. But a lot of times they don't know. And that's part of our job to help them. And they, don't, they don't have to know, you know, because we're also discovering the thing that has to be solved. And it might not be the actual thing that they asked us to solve in the first place. That's part of what we do too. But I think what I finally realized was, oh my God, this is the, it's, this is that, you know, it's like that P under the, the mattress princess story or whatever, you know, it's like, this is the thing that is bothering her the most. And if I can resolve that for her and she wants to resolve so much that she gave me her cell phone number. She is now, basically she didn't show up to our, we, we did the presentation and then she never showed up to our next meeting because um, one of her, um, you know, you know, managing report, uh, direct said, Oh, did you not realize? And then he showed us the cover of a major newspaper and she was, uh, you know, uh, the CEO of a very high level company. We're like, Oh, she's really smart and awesome. But I just, she knew exactly what she wanted, but she was also vulnerable about the fact that she didn't know, but she wanted our help. That's all she wanted. But she was, she was very blunt and direct. And I guess she put a lot of fear into people, but I didn't, I, I just, I, I, she was one of my favorite clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is why I, you know, which is why I work so well with Germans and Koreans. <laughs> yeah, blend. I mean that as a positive. I mean that as a compliment. I truly yeah, do. Absolutely. So, what would be a typical thing that keeps clients like that up at night, and how do you go about solving their challenges? So, I think they're naturally the particulars are going to be different across projects and clients and industries, yeah. but they all fall under like if you know the umbrella. Uh, that all the specifics would fall under is really the, simply the dynamic process of technology from the work I do. But I'm pretty sure everyone else understands what I'm talking about. This is nothing new, right? The extreme pace, the impact, and the complexity um, that everyone is dealing with. That in itself is what within that is going to be a very specific thing related to the pace, impact of technology and the complexity in which they are trying to resolve. Um, and that's a different, you know, that could be the particular unit within this company. Now for startups or people, you know, the smaller companies that are really, you know, the pioneers at the forefront of technology, 
the things that, that they face typically is how do we take what we're doing, which is pioneering and not regulated and in this sort of gray area, but is but we ourselves, like in terms of that dynamic progress of technology, we're part of that group, is how do we take what we're doing and fit that into the existing regu- regulatory laws and foundation, you know, regulatory compliance? Because, and you know, so how do we fit what we're doing, the product, the software, the solution, how do we fit that into that existing frame? And so... Th- that's what I see on the other side of it when I'm dealing with companies that are at the forefront of technology. They're trying to deal with the existing framework. Mm. And then you have companies that are trying to take what they're doing. They have regulatory not you know down. That's not a problem. But they're trying to do something new that isn't hampered too much by their existing framework that has been in place for several decades or, or more. Yeah. Um, and what do you see as some common uh, mistakes or, or misconceptions people make when trying to deal with those those kinds of problems? I think the well, I think the common mistake is that they are mistaking. Of course, we're looking for a solution, but I think what happens is they are so focused on the solution mm-hmm. that there and there are times where we have gotten it right. That during the time that you get to that solution, no one has documented the, the processes, the governance, all the boring things that, by the way, people are like, you know, they, they, they want to snooze at because they just wanted to solve the problem. And of course, yes, I understand everybody has to focus on the one big goal. And that's, you know, you're in these meetings, people say that, but you still need, whether it fails or, or succeeds, if you don't document that, how are you going to remember that? So, you know, it's very difficult to go and people say, oh, we're going to do this, you know, um, you know, we're going to do an assessment after the fact. But that kind of evidentiary record to reconstruct that is tremendously difficult. You can ask people, how do you do that? You should do it at that time. And so you have to be the break that's at the person that says, okay, I know that, you know, everyone's making progress. We're feeling good. But, you know, however, within that process you're brought in, I'm going to have to be that person that says, you know, we need someone to document it. If you want it to be me, I'll do it. That'll be my entire job. But if we don't do that after the fact, our memories, no, we're not going to, you know, everyone has, it's going to be like a Rashomon type, but everyone's going to have a different memory of what happened. Yeah. And we're going to have to reconstruct it so that we are not able to replicate or avoid X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So I think it's completely right to focus on the important goal of solution, you know, finding the solution or, you know, what that, you know, just having a big goal, but you still need to do what I call all the boring things that you think an adult should do. That is not you. Yeah. That makes me think of, um, in my agency, we, we have what we call an issue log. And so if there's a, a a problem that crops up and sometimes it's often reoccurring or sometimes it just happens like once every blue moon we just at least document it what was the issue what were the you know the factors and then what what was the outcome or the solution or what should we do next time so at least we have that like you say documented we can make sure if it comes up again we know exactly where to look and how to tackle it rather than just ah, solving it and moving on and then the next time it comes up yeah absolutely and and i will say most organizations at this point do have that in place or they you know they have 
it's it's definitely you know oh we're going to use and you know Jira Trello what and they already Airtable like or what I call I call it like they have the veneer of organizational process in place yeah but what happens sort of a, what happens along the line is something is, the momentum of or the pressure to get something out you know to meet a certain deadline will overtake mm. everything else and that's maybe driven by an executive or not who is far removed from what the group is doing so that that gets left behind so of course every we all come in with good intentions but we, you know you can only as they say you can only manage behavior that's what you can see yeah so yeah. everybody of course has the good has good intentions and that is on, at the outset everybody says that well we don't always adhere to it and i know that because i've been part of teams where we didn't either mm. so i try to be that person that sort of does that boring adult stuff and make sure, you know, make sure that we keep to it or find someone that that's their sole job. Maybe yeah. it, it's just very hard to do because yeah, the, there's an excitement or a deadline. There's outside forces. There are constant outside forces pressuring the team, the unit, the business group to in, in and, um, and I also mean like even regulatory laws and it just might come in and we don't know, you know, that changes the dynamic and that changes your timetable. So a lot of things that we used to have in place are often thrown out because we're like, oh my God, this, this outside force is, you know, we have to do this. So then it's all, it's just complete haywire after that. Yeah. 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 So, so it's very natural to, yeah to go that way. So, and so you've described the documenting and, and making sure that someone's being the sensible adult in the room, <laughs> but are there any other actions or approaches that people can take even small ones in the right direction to mitigate some of that, those problems? Oh, sure. And I'm not the person that, that has come up with it. Of course, there's mm. pre-mortems, which have worked very well. Um, pre-mortem workshops. I think those are ways to identify risks that you'll run into the other thing is, you know, to also set people's expectations in advance. I mean, I can take you in a car and we'll say, yeah, I'm going to, I mean, we can just get, you can get in the car, we'll get on the road. You don't know where we're going. Or I can tell you beforehand, um, hey, we're going to go to this place and I'm going to take this route to this, you know, to this road or this highway and this exit. And, you know, what's your preference? I do ask people that actually, what would you like? Of course, everyone wants to know that roadmap, but you know, I also say, okay, so when I give the roadmap, I was like, I would be very surprised if we actually go this way, <laughs> meaning that we're going to hit this target at this meet. I've done massive uh, software migrations, which I won't get into specifics, but I think I, I know you have had experience mm. with that. And I've never seen one come in on time yeah. or on budget. I've one time was involved with one that came in under budget quickly, but with a tremendous amount of people. So, you know, it's sweater, you know, or equity at that point, right? Sweater cost labor at that point. I mean, yeah. it, or, or sweat or cost equity. I can't remember now, but it's just, yeah, that happened. And people would be like, that's the success. I was like, but the team grew by a couple of hundred more people. That's the only reason why. Um, so I think. It's just, those are all the ways you can mitigate it by trying to sort of show beforehand, like, this is the road that we can take. This is the possible risks everyone thinks because we have a pre-mortem, you know, that, that is really helpful to do. But the reality is I'm not necessarily brought in at that time 
from the very, it's not always that clean. I'm not brought in that way. Um, And that's not anyone's fault. What I'm trying to say is for a lot of consultants, it's great if you could be at that very beginning, but sometimes they bring on consultants in the middle specifically because that need arises in the middle of a project. So you don't have that time and luxury to tell everyone to take a step back. So there's no point in telling people they should have done X, Y, and Z. Mm. It's just, how can I help them best? Because it's not going to help anybody. And I'm not there to tell them what they did wrong, but I'm there to help them make things better as we go on. And then they, then what's wonderful is then they want to work with you next. And then you can do that. I mean, that's the way I've been able to do it. I think other people have been able to shortcut it faster, but I think the other thing that I've seen a lot of companies with entrepreneurial ask, you know, uh, yearnings is, you know, they always want to be first. And I say, you know, I don't think uh, my coworker once said to me, I think it's best just not to be last. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, that's a realistic goal. Yeah. So I say, you know, maybe instead of saying like, let's be first to do this. And a lot of them don't want to necessarily be first, but they want to be the most innovative. I said, well, let's just not be the last. That's a, that's a realistic goal. Yeah. No one's going to be disappointed. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we will hit that target. Yeah. Um, because I, I think this notion of digital innovation, this notion of innovation, um, oftentimes for established companies, a lot of people are persuaded more by the veneer than the actual substance. Yeah. So it's our job to be, if we are expert as consultants, right? The classic definition, you're an and I don't, I don't like to use that word expert, but you know, you're supposed to have an some, you're supposed to have enough knowledge or experience to work with, um, to advise a group of people. You know, that's the classic definition of consultants. But if you are going to do that, you're also going to have to be aware of not only like your own cognitive biases, but the fact that yes, we're in this current state of mind we're confusing the veneer for the sub- for the substance. So, you know, you go into these offices that are digital or that are innovative and there are all these like sort of gizmos and toys and things that are, you know, beeping and, you know, whizzing, but I have never seen a group of people that look more unhappy in many of these offices. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's for every place, but I'm saying I've seen that especially at the beginning at big established companies, you know, and not, that's not true for every company. I'm just, it, it's, this is, you know, it's almost like, it's like when I was saying like, you know, like Koreans are very blunt. It's, it's a stereotype that is not necessarily true. There's some truth to it, mm. but the recognition of that is, you know, that's one example, but now maybe it might be something else where the veneer is being substituted for the real thing. I just don't, you know, but it's, I just always have to be aware of that because I'm I'm trying to notice the first layer versus the second layer. So I originally came from ethnography. So part of that is it taught me a lot about finding that gap between what people say versus what people do. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I think that's probably the most important sort of fundamental thing that I always come back to. Because, you know, people will give you an organizational chart or raise, they'll give you all these things, but 
it's that moment. Um, and I'm not saying any, I'm not trying to compare and what we do or anything to superheroes, but you know, in X-Men, you know, when Magneto says to, I can't remember the name of the character, he's like, you know, what's your real name? Cause it's like, whatever your title is, that's not really what you do. Yeah. And so I have to spend time figuring that out in a way that's not confrontational or I can be, you know, I can ask that directly, but I think I tried to be, at least in the beginning, very aware of the tensions that are in place because that's often when I'm brought in. Yeah. I'm not brought in during a happy time. Yeah. You know, you they have of, to meet a deadline. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You remind me of a friend of mine who um, he once contracted with a large corporate and came in and found that he was able to basically fulfill all his responsibilities as, as an, an external consultant brought in in a very short space of time. So he's like, what do I do with the rest of my time? So he just went around asking people what they actually did and finding ways to help people do their jobs better. And he, he actually started a kind of an, an entrepreneurial initiative of his own, which is basically, basically built a product that helped the company and then eventually ended up spinning that off as his own platform, his own software platform. So... Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I I have not been as productive as your friend, but I I but I but I absolutely think that is I would say that's an interesting experiment everyone should do. I mean, whether yeah. or not you're in charge of change management or innovation, I don't, you know, you can also create a space for your for yourself because the titles that were given or or the roles that people have, you know, are often just sort of inherited and not necessarily very um, it doesn't align necessarily roles and responsibilities. And by the way, not anyone's fault. This is what we inherited. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Uh, because I do, you know, here's the thing. Most of my clients from the entrepreneurial standpoint, they are tremendous. They're large global companies, you know, on the FT global, whatever, you know, list versus, you know, when I deal with small companies, um, they're very you know, they're much smaller, you know, it's like a Danish, uh, German, uh, you know, mushroom as protein uh, lab with these, you know, amazing scientists and engineers. And so that's, a you know, I'm, I'm dealing with everybody in one room, we mm-hmm. can get something done. It's very different, of course, you know, yeah. and I think that's, that's what I, what I see are both extreme ends. I have not worked with that sort of middle group. Yeah. Yeah. So I may. Be, so this is only from my perspective, which is ve- which is very either or. Great. And um, finally, Sonia, as we as we wrap up here, can you tell us more about where people can find out more about you? Yes, they can go to my website, which is just soniaree.com, and they can reach out to me there and or connect with me through the social badges on the site. That that'll probably be the easiest. So. Fantastic. So, Sonia, thank you so much for your time and all the wisdom and insights that you've shared with us today. Thanks, Jonathan, for having me. It was awesome just to discuss this with you and sort of hash out everything. Absolutely. Cheers. Have you ever wondered what it takes to launch a podcast for your own consultancy? If so, you'll definitely want to tune into our sister show, Podcasting for Consultants, which shares our whole playbook on exactly how to launch revenue-generating podcast. In order to tune in, all you have to do is search for Podcasting for Consultants on your favorite podcast player. Alternatively, you can also find it 
on our website at podcastingforconsultants.net.